Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, an ominous baby, by Stephen Crane. This is first published in the Arena. That's a magazine. Uh, May 1894. We have done previous Stephen Cranes. He's a guy who uh, I heard about in school, and I'm like, I don't know, this stuffy guy. Long time ago, teachers like him. Gotta be crap. (laughs) Turns out, he's actually pretty good. Um, But he's also kind of mysterious, and this is a kind of a mysterious story. I want to kind of classify it as a um, a symbolist story, which is kind of funny because symbolists are usually painters. But um, we'll see what you think, uh, and uh, maybe you can read it to us, and and uh, we can all experience that for ourselves. Okay, <laughs> an ominous baby. A baby was wandering in a strange country. He was a tattered child with a frowzled wealth of yellow hair. His dress of a checkered stuff was soiled and showed the marks of many conflicts like the chain shirt of a warrior. His sun-tanned knees shone above wrinkled stockings, which he pulled up occasionally with an impatient movement when they entangled his feet. From a gaping shoe, there appeared an array of tiny toes. He was toddling along an avenue between rows of stolid brown houses. He went slowly with a look of absorbed interest on his small, flushed face. His blue eyes stared curiously. Carriages went with a musical rumble over the smooth asphalt. A man with a chrysanthemum was going up steps. Two nursery maids chatted as they walked slowly. Their charges hobnobbed amiably between perambulators. A truck wagon roared thunderously in the distance. The child from the poor district made way along the brown street filled with dull gray shadows. High up near the roofs, glancing sun rays changed cornices to blazing gold and silvered the fronts of windows. The wandering baby stopped and stared at the two children, laughing and playing in their carriages among the heaps of rugs and cushions. He braced his legs apart in an attitude of earnest attention. His lower jaw fell and disclosed his small, even teeth. As they moved on, he followed the carriages with awe in his face, as if contemplating a pageant. Once one of the babies, with twittering laughter, shook a gorgeous rattle at him. He smiled jovially in return. Finally, a nursery maid ceased conversation and turning made a gesture of annoyance. Go away, little boy, she said to him. Go away. You're all dirty. He gazed at her with infant tranquility for a moment and then went slowly off, dragging behind him a bit of rope he had acquired in another street. He continued to investigate the new scenes. The people and houses struck him with interest, as would flowers and trees. Passengers had to avoid the small, absorbed figure in the middle of the sidewalk. They glanced at the intent baby face covered with scratches and dust, as with scars and powder smoke. After a time, the wanderer discovered upon the pavement a pretty child in fine clothes playing with a toy. 
It was a toy fire engine painted brilliantly in crimson and gold. The leaves rattled as its small owner dragged it uproariously about by means of a string. The babe, with his bit of rope trailing behind him, paused and regarded the child and the toy. For a long while, he remained motionless, save for his eyes, which followed all movements of the glittering thing. The owner paid no attention to the spectator, but continued his joyous imitations of phases of the career of a fire engine. His gleeful baby laugh rang against the calm fronts of the houses. After a little, the wandering baby began quietly to sidle nearer. His bit of rope, now forgotten, dropped at his feet. He removed his eyes from the toy and glanced expectantly at the other child. Say, he breathed softly. The owner of the toy was running down the walk at top speed. His tongue was clanging like a bell and his legs were galloping. An iron post on the corner was all ablaze. He did not look around at the coaxing call from the small tattered figure on the curb. The wandering baby approached still nearer and presently spoke again. Say, he murmured, let me play with it. The other child interrupted some shrill tootings. He bended his head and spoke disdainfully over his shoulder. No, he said. The wanderer retreated to the curb. He failed to notice the bit of rope once treasured. His eyes followed as before the winding course of the engine, and his tender mouth twitched. Say, he ventured at last, is that yours? Yes, said the other, tilting his chin. He drew his property suddenly behind him as if it were menaced. Yes, he repeated, it's mine. Well, let me play with it, said the wandering baby with a trembling note of desire in his voice. No, cried the pretty child with determined lips. It's mine. My mama bite it. Well, can't I play with it? His voice was a sob. He stretched forth little covetous hands. No. The pretty boy continued to repeat, no, it's mine. Well, I want to play with it, wailed the other. A sudden fierce frown mantled his baby face. He clenched his thin hands and advanced with a formidable gesture. He looked some wee battler in a war. It's mine, it's mine, cried the pretty child, his voice in the treble of outraged rights. I want it, roared the wanderer. It's mine, it's mine. I want it, it's mine. The pretty child retreated to the fence and there paused at bay. He protected his property with outstretched arms. The small vandal made a charge. There was a short scuffle at the fence. Each grasped the string to the toy and tugged. Their faces were wrinkled with baby rage, the verge of tears. Finally, the child in tatters gave a supreme tug and wrenched the string from the other's hands. He set off rapidly down the street, bearing the toy in his arms. He was weeping with the air of a wronged one who had at last succeeded in achieving his rights. The other baby was squalling lustily. He seemed quite helpless. He wrung his chubby hands and railed. After the small barbarian had got some distance away, he 
paused and regarded his booty. The little form curved with pride. A soft, gleeful smile loomed through the storm of tears. With great care, he prepared the toy for traveling. He stopped a moment on a corner and gazed at the pretty child, whose small figure was quivering with sobs. As the latter began to show signs of beginning pursuit, the little vandal turned and vanished down a dark side street as into a swallowing cavern. So when I first read this, I was like, huh? <laughs> what? Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I think if you don't read it as a, exactly a straight story, um, it makes some sense in another way. But um, uh, it's funny because there's a couple of lines here and there. Um, like, for example, uh, the wee battler. Um, Warrior. The, uh, yeah, and wee battler's also in there. Oh, Small yes. barbarian, You're right. right? You're right. Small vandal. Um, there's a story by Ray Bradbury called The Small Assassin, which is mm-hmm. <laughs> it's about a baby who's trying to kill uh, its uh, parents. Um, and the husband's super sensitive to it, and the wife is not. Um, uh, and in a sense, that's true. Like um, when a when a baby bird is hatched in its nest, it opens up its mouth and says "ah," and the parents <laughs> have to feed it, right? And they always have to feed it. And this is very very costly for birds um, because not only they have to feed themselves, they have to feed their babies. Um, so it's a good thing they know how to do it and all that. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any more birds. But in this case, um, we're not talking about baby birds. Um, we're talking about human babies. And uh, so he's a talking baby, which makes him a little uh, bigger <laughs> than a, a crawling baby. But um, in, in, go for in it. fact, the word toddler, the word toddle is used. So. Mm-hmm. He toddles. This is an 1894 story. We would have just called him a toddler, but the word baby still did mean it, it wasn't just speechless kids. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. There's two, there's two things distancing us from this story, I think. One is um, the description of the ominous baby as – I'll just read that line again. His dress of a check stuff was soiled and showed the marks of many conflicts – like the chain shirt of a warrior. Uh, babies get dirty, but they don't usually have like chain mail, right? So it doesn't right. say he has chain mail. It compares him to that. And uh, all of his, you know, later on he's got scars, like as a scratches and dust, as scars and as from scars and powder smoke. This is a this is a war baby, right? <laughs> Which is a, oh, yeah. a, a kind of a weird idea too. But um, so there's that distancing, but there's also the distancing of today, you know, in North America, anyways, people don't tend to let their kids free range like this. And yet that was actually happening. Now, it wasn't the case that crawling babies were usually allowed to wander through, you know, busy streets with, you know, cars and uh, horses and stuff like that. But they were pretty free range. As soon as they're allowed to walk, they can basically go out into the yard and get in trouble and go to the park and do all that stuff. And we don't do that anymore, really. We sort of wait until later, and then we hover over them like helicopters. So there, that's distance, distancing us 
from this story as well. But I think there is something else going on besides that. I think there's a message, and it goes right back to the title. An ominous baby. Um, And I don't think it's an ominous baby only for, you know, this other kid who has his fire truck stolen from him. But rather, it's an ominous baby for the future. Because this baby is a symbol for something forthcoming in the future of 1901. Um, For example... um, I mean, do you, I mean, I I could respond. Well, I'm, I I'm just thinking, here. like, basically, this is a social Darwinism story. It's saying, you know, this is a rich street, right? Most of the action takes place on this rich street. We hear about this tunnel at the end. We hear about where this baby's come from, where he picked up this rope with nothing attached to it that he was dragging behind him. And he wanders into this rich neighborhood where a, a fancy baby who's being pushed by a maid shakes a rattle at him that's like a beautiful rattle it's like a piece of jewelry right well meanwhile he's dressed in rags his socks don't fit um his shoes are his toes are exposed to his shoes and he's just amazed at everything around him and there's a little kid who's playing with this toy that he's enjoying and this other kid is acting as a predator upon him and he gets pushed down and has his toy taken away from him and the little vandal runs off. And it's almost like we're supposed to sympathize with somebody here, but I think that that's a mistake, that he's pushing on us, the crane is. I think he's pushing us to look at this picture as like what's wrong with the world, that we have poor children who are dirty and ragged and don't have any toys. And there are rich kids who have expensive rattles and nannies and uh, nice uh, new fire trucks that their mama buyed for them. And that's not fair sort of thing. And, <laughs> and, and that's what literally the kids are fighting over is, is you know, he says it's not fair. He, uh, their faces, be- it's, it's full of these great images. Their faces were wrinkled with baby rage. I guess I know what baby rage is, but baby rage is pretty tame, so it's ominous. Oh, I think baby rage is. I don't think baby rage is generally very physically destructive. Right. Real babies can't. You know, you you can just grab them and stop them from doing things. But if you if you've watched infants when they think that something terrible has happened. They can screw up their faces and really show rage. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are they are fierce, ineffective but fierce. But they're effective with their parents, which is what, of course, evolution wanted to make sure they could succeed with. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that this story has a lot more going on than I mean. Uh, I think I think it is amazingly well written, and I'll mm-hmm. try to show some of the reasons I think that. Um, I think it is deeply elusive and I think that it is politically engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, a baby was wandering in a strange country. I see that line and instantly I think of a stranger in a strange land. Sure. Um, and that stranger in a strange land, um, is Moses who has been enslaved and he names his son Gershom because he to commemorate that he was a stranger in a strange land, his son with Sephora. 
Um, but we know what's going to happen with Moses. He, in fact, is going to uh, to lead the Hebrews to the promised land. He will come out of poverty, enslavement. Moses himself, of course, was not poor, but the Hebrews were slaves and impoverished. And he's going to lead them out to the promised land. It's also, I'm looking now toward the end of this story, it's also true that at the end of that story of Moses in Exodus, which is where we get the line about stranger in a strange land, Moses himself doesn't get to enter the land. He gets to see it, but he doesn't get to enter it. So this baby who is the ominous baby and is showing some ill fortune for someone, the ill fortune he shows is for the 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 moneyed class, but it's not that it's going to turn out to be really good for him. Um, another way in which I, I see this uh, is it's more it's not just a poor kid versus a rich kid. The poor kid is alone. You spoke of free range children. Mm-hmm. We have no idea if this kid has parents. If he lives on the street already, if uh, he goes from from home to home, um, we don't know what's going on. Um, While the kid who has the toy has a parent, probably since he lives on this street when he was younger, he had a nursemaid. Mm -hmm. He is entitled. He has people caring for him so much so that he can only raise his hands in pudgy fury Mm -hmm. because he hasn't learned how to do much. Now, at around the same time that this is published, we get, I mean, a year later, the time machine. And the, the effete upper class Eloy are ultimately 800 years in the future. As you said, this is an omen for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the, the fodder for the Morlocks. And it's explained that the Morlocks are the descendants of the workers who had eventually come to live entirely underground. This was, in 1895 a science fictional dramatization of the social situation that Disraeli, the writer and prime minister, Disraeli had laid out in a book called Sybil or the Two Nations in 1845, in which he already talks about how the the workers who are digging the, the railway, the, the trains in London and through England, you know, the subterranean workers are different from the people above ground who live in a sunny world. So the sunlight and darkness imagery goes back a half century. And we see that here. We have the sunny street. We have yellow hair, though, for the boy, right? That ominous baby. But he doesn't get to have the sunny world. He has to keep his toy. He's got to retreat into a side street He's off on the side in the present, but it's like a cavern. And so it is ominous for the future. He's going to be reborn as the destroyer. As Jesus comes back to change the world, he's going to come back and destroy their world. But is that a good thing? And I think that the story gives us reasons to wonder about it. The the language of flame is everywhere in this story. Mm -hmm. 
Right. The the iron post at the end of the street is in flame. We've already been told that the street was blazing with the sunlight. The toy is a fire engine. Mm-hmm. Engines are in use to protect other people's property. But this baby from the dirty lower classes who looks like a warrior in training, in fact, has stolen that toy. So the property is not protected. In fact, there will be a revolution. It is not coincidental, I think, that Stephen Crane, when he lived in England and was much admired, had an open home um, at which he had as prominent guests members of the Fabian Society, the, the most prominent intellectual group of socialists that of whom, among others, was H.G. Wells. Um, so <laughs> what we have here, I think, is a story that asks us to understand that what this boy is doing, this who's stealing the, the toy, is utterly natural. It doesn't make him good, but it makes it natural. Mm-hmm. But I think the story goes even further. We have those nursemaids who have synchronized their walk so that the babies in their carriages can talk to each other. Now, presumably, the nursemaids synchronized their walk so that they could talk to each other. Mm -hmm. But they're out there walking the babies because they are employed to walk the babies. There is an entire social system that's set up that not only decides who gets goodies and who doesn't, but who works for people and how their work will go. And in trying to accommodate themselves to the strictures of their work, they have automatically set themselves up to stay in parallel. They are going along together side by side like the rails of a train. And Marx would have told us the locomotive of history is driving in one direction. The boy with the fire engine clearly once was one of those babies or mm-hmm. like right? um, if he grew up feeling entitled if he grew up feeling that property was more important than than camaraderie mm-hmm. it, it's not his fault I mean it may be maybe he's a little prick the little kid but <laughs> but we know how any kid might have turned out to be that way and it's not that crane has shown us that he became possessive and egotistical and narcissistic and mean because he was a nasty kid. He, in fact, is a happy kid playing imaginatively with his toy. Mm -hmm. And nursemaids are happy and the babies in the carriages are happy. The reality is capital turns out grasping people. And they have so utter a lack of sympathy that only an invader from without, the word vandal is used in mm-hmm. this, only an invader from without can set it in a different direction. It's dangerous. It's heartrending. It's illegal. But it's inevitable and necessary. I think this ominous baby is really a political story. Yeah. Good psychological insight.
Mm-hmm. The the there's an ominous um, omen <laughs> early on uh, that echoes the uh, thing that happens later um, at the end of the uh, second paragraph. Um, two nursery maids chatted as they walked slowly with their charges, uh, hobnobbing, <laughs> right. uh, babies hobnobbing, amiably between the perambulators. So that's actually not how the two boys with ropes and strings get along, right? Um, although the two ladies are pushing these perambulators, these boys are both dragging a rope or a string behind them. Um, one, one set of kids younger than this ominous baby uh, gets pushed and the others drag, right? But then we get a truck wagon roared thunderously in the distance. Um, so when when we do see this boy pulling a fire engine, um, we, we we probably don't think about this much. When I was picturing it, I, I was thinking about, you know, what kind of toys I liked when I was this age, which is, it's got to be a two or three at most, right? Um, our fire engines today are self-powered. They are a vehicle that is self-powered in the same way that a car is. The fire engines of this period are just starting to make that transition. Most are going to be pulled, pulled by horses. The engine is to push the water, to power the water, to carry the hoses. It's not uh, a powering itself. And so the little boys pulling these wagons are acting like beasts of burden, like horses pulling the wagons. Um, well, the one boy, he's not pulling anything. He's just got a rope that he picked up. And when he sees a boy who's actually pulling something substantial and pretty, a fire truck, ooh, that's exciting. Um, mm-hmm. And he wants to try it. He wants to be useful in the world and have capital and all that stuff but more importantly i i was thinking like why is it that little boys like dump trucks and fire trucks and i think it's because when they look out their window and they city and they see a dump truck this powerful vehicle stronger than the truck daddy drives it can carry so much stuff and wow look at all the dirt and rocks coming out of the back and pouring into that space it's so strong, and when you see the fire truck goes by, it, it makes a lot of noise, and it's red, and everybody has to give way to it. It's so powerful, right? This is, of course, you know, why kids like Superman, too. He's got a red cape, and he's powerful, and he's bulletproof, all the things boys like, right? But uh, Superman's the hero, and so is the fire truck. The fire truck is there to put out the fire, it's to... And once we get into the age where, you know, we're doing things properly, which I think most places are doing now, the fire truck is communally funded, right? It's not a private insurance company that has a fire truck to put out your house and not put out your neighbors because he doesn't have a fire. It's to put out everybody's fire. Everybody pays their taxes and everybody gets the benefit. So the... The is that already true in 1894? It's, it's just transitioning, right? Um, be, you know, if you go back to the Gangs of New York era, the fire tr- fire trucks are all private insurance company, and you put a sign out front of your lawn that says your house is protected by this this fire protection company, right? Right. So I'm not sure when the transition comes, 
but I do know that it's around this period. But even so, it isn't a cop car he's pulling. It's a fire truck, which is a, I think, an even more popular toy still today than, you know, little cop cars being pulled behind little boys. This idea of, of you're, you're powerful and you're a hero um, is very strong. So when this boy, he wants to p- play with it, he says, no, it's mine. My mama bought it. That's what makes it mine, right? And as you point out, we don't know anything about this ominous baby's parentage. Maybe he has a mom. Maybe he has an aunt. Maybe there's a grandfather. We don't know. He probably, uh, he's not searching for food at the moment, so he probably had a meal at some point. But he's certainly not dressed the way uh, somebody who was proud of their uh, their station in life would dress their kid. He's he's free ranging it, and as you say at the end, he doesn't go into this sunlit uh, street that you know even with its asphalt and gray, gray and brown houses um, is has gold at the tops and silver at the tops on the windows. What is where does he retreat to? He retreats into a swallowing cavern, and it is it is a kind of like. I think it's it's why I always tell my students, titles make or break stories often. And in this case, it not only, you know, interested me with this contrast, babies being ominous, that's kind of weird. Unless we're talking like the movie The Omen or something. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? In this case, um, it's because babies grow up and we're already inundated right away with all these signs that this is a veteran baby. Right? It is a battle-hardened baby. And this other baby who, you know, just has his mama to rely on and thinks he's safe in his neighborhood, he ain't so safe. Indeed. <laughs> that's that's Marx. And, uh, and that's what it's about. And unlike um, many more politically doctrinaire writers, it seems to me that Crane really is suffering for both children. I Um, agree. He he feels for his people, even though, to go back to your use of uh, the word symbolist, um, one could read this as if they were, the, the characters were filling social roles in order to to demonstrate the way the machinery of society functions. But I think that they are so much more than that, which is why in a hands like his or readings like yours, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.